The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Owen Hatherley. We talked about a newly published collection of his writings, Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, Finding a Home in the Ruins of Modernism. We chatted about Owen's early experience of writing in the left blog scene of the early 2000s, why he came to write primarily on architecture and urban design rather than one of his other passions, pop music, And at the end of the interview, we talked about Owen's review of K-Punk, the collected writings of his friend Mark Fisher. If you would like to hear the extended 70-minute version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Revenge of the Real, Politics for a Post-Pandemic World by Benjamin Bratton. COVID-19 exposed the pre-existing conditions of the current global crisis. Many Western states failed to protect their populations, while others were able to suppress the virus only with sweeping social restrictions. In contrast, many Asian countries were able to make much more precise interventions. What lessons are to be learned? The Revenge of the Real by Benjamin Bratton envisions a new positive biopolitics that recognises that governance is literally a matter of life and death. Can the world govern itself differently? What models and philosophies are needed? Bratton argues that instead of thinking of biotechnologies as something imposed on society, we must see them as essential to a politics of infrastructure, knowledge and direct intervention. The Revenge of the Real Politics for a Post-Pandemic World by Benjamin Bratton is out now from Verso Books and part of their June book club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. And now to today's interview. Owen Hatherley is the culture editor at Tribune magazine and the author of many books including Militant Modernism, A Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain, Landscapes of Communism and Red Metropolis, Socialism and the Government of London. His new book, which was the topic of our conversation, is Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, Finding a Home in the Ruins of Modernism. I began the interview by asking Owen whether, when he began blogging in the early 2000s, he thought that writing would be something he would go on to do professionally and that would take up so much of his life, or whether he envisaged writing as a hobby or a sideline or as solely a political intervention. I don't know what I thought it was. Um... I wasn't thinking of it in a particularly kind of hobbyish way, and I wasn't thinking of it as a career because I didn't think those careers really existed. Um, <laughs> trying to think of a way of sort of putting this doesn't sound sort of um, grandiose or self-important, but it was sort of I, like quite a lot of the people that sort of started blogs around that time were having sort of physical or mental troubles, let's say, and I think for a lot of people it was something they just sort of did because they had to. 
Yeah, it, it, it was more out of some sort of feeling of something that you needed to do rather than a, a sort of means to an end or as something that you were just sort of trying out for a laugh. I took myself far too seriously at the time to be even contemplating doing anything for a laugh. In terms of that blogging scene that you that you mentioned, I mean, how much of that was it, what was it a scene? Because I suppose, you know, sort of looking back at it now, it, a lot of those different blogs and those different people can be put together as if they were yeah. a, a relatively tight unit. How, how did you see it at, at the time? Um, the, the first kind of attempts at sort of writing that I'd made were not in blogs, but were in a fanzine, which I um, ran with uh, Robert Barry, who um, was a musician and um Currently, is arts editor at the Quietus, um, and he, um, he and I, I think one of the things that was sort of frustrating, and that that obviously were, we we were friends before we were doing that. You know, we had we were friends, and then we did this thing. And of course, you know, you would take your like twenty copies to Rough Trade, and they would possibly be sold, and you would never hear from anyone, <laughs> and possibly because they weren't very good. So, whereas blogs, I think, were more. I suppose, like lots of you know, it's sort of standard now for people to to have met on the internet and for these sort of elective groups to have um, to to form, but it felt quite novel at the time. Um, and when I was just reading the blogs and lurking on them, I remember people referring to uh, me and my internet friends as if this was some sort of like, oh, he's talking to his internet friends. Um, and of course, we are now, you know, constantly talking to our internet friends every day, all day. Um, so to answer the question, yeah, there was a group and I think it already existed when I came into it and it was people that had gone to Warwick University together, mostly, plus people that, and that had been sort of associated with it. So it was more or less, I mean, they were kind of parallel groups and the one that I ended up in was, I guess, sort of centred on Warwick University. There was a parallel group, which was around before around sort of Freaky Trigger and I Love Music Forum. Right. These, these are the, the poptimists. Yeah, the poptimists. And I, I was never, you know, ended up being a bit of a war between the two, but there were kind of figures in between like Mark Sinker, who, who everybody liked and still do. Whereas, so it was obviously kind of people that were involved in the CCRU, like Mark Fisher, people that were, you know, that had kind of like written about it, like Simon Reynolds, and people that had gone to Warwick but weren't in the CCRU, like Nina Power. So going into that as someone that didn't know any of those things was sort of partly because of the fact that they were very friendly people, which they were. They were constantly kind of like, come to our party, come to this, come to that. And I did, and I ended up friends with them. Um, and they were always very kind of um, friendly and flattering of other people's work. And so you end up later with people that didn't know each other beforehand. Um being roughly part of that group. So people like Dominic Fox, Douglas Murphy, Carl Neville within the UK, and then people that weren't at all, like Anwen Crawford in, in, in Australia, for instance. Um, and, you know, people sort of corresponding who I've still never met. Um, Ivor Southwood, who wrote a brilliant blog called Screened Out and then collected lots of the stuff from it into... I think easily one of the best zero books, Nonstop Inertia. I've never met either. I don't think anyone's ever met either. <laughs> um, and then there were kind of floating people around to, you know, almost sort of mythical, like Robin Carmody, um, who had a sort of series of blogs that sort of 
you know, had this sort of obviously trying to write this strange sort of long durée history of, of, of British life through um, TV and pop music. So, yeah, there was a fairly coherent group. And I suppose there were sort of consecutive groups. There was sort of that group, and then there were people that came in later, um, like Alex Niven and Rian Jones and Carl Neville. But we did all know each other. We don't now in some cases. I mean, obviously some people are dead. Um, some people there have been quite large fallings out. Um, but Douglas is a close friend. Carl is. Dominic is. Um, you know, there, there there are people that are, that are still very tight. And in terms of that that group, I mean, what do you see as the key sort of political and, and cultural commonalities? I suppose, and this doesn't apply for everybody. It was a response, I think, to new labour culture. Let's say I, I, I've often said, and this wasn't, and it's not intended entirely to be bitchy. But that I think, you know, I'd always thought that Mark would have remained, a, 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 you know, basically a libertarian if it were not for the fact that pop music had ceased to be interesting in the 2000s. You know, that the kind of, that things like sort of Jungle, which obviously all the CCRU cats were all obsessed with, was a kind of a narco-capitalist thing, you know. And that that kind of culture, you, you kept having sort of thrown up these kind of like, strange and futuristic forms often coming from um, London working class. And then you had this kind of compulsory sort of like grinning idiot optimism, um, which I would sort of disassociate a little bit with what kind of people like Mark Senker and Tom Ewing were doing, because they took music and pop culture very, very seriously, even when it was silly. Whereas the people I'm talking about uh, you know, that, that Channel 4 is the kind of paradigmatic example, right? That people the, like Mark... The big brother and, years. Yeah. People like Mark and, and, and Ian Penman would always have talk about, you know, growing up watching, like, Tarkovsky seasons on Channel 4. And if you caught just the tail end of that, and then you end up with kind of, you know, reality TV. And there's an amazing Ian Penman blog post, which I always go back to, where he's, like, um, sort of scrolling through... TV channels in like 2003 and four, and Channel Four in the evening, the film is Demi Moore and Striptease. And he's just like, "Who is this for? Who on earth wants to watch this at this time of night?" You know, like if what you want is pornography, you can get that pretty easily. You know, like if what you want, but why would you? What's it for? And that that kind of like, and and that that also happened to the BBC. You know, that 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 BBC Four's kind of brief promise of being a. Um, you know, a kind of revival of that kind of like Rethian mission was very, very quickly crushed in favour of kind of, you know, sort of Sunday supplement crap of like historians going on a journey and drone photography and just just rubbish, but like, you know, slightly more highbrow rubbish. And along with that, there was, I guess there was that thing, which was the sort of state thing. And then along with that, the the culture of the music press you know, that the blogs, and this included both sort of wings of the sort of warring blogs, I think, both the kind of optimists and the kind of Warwick people, and that they all were kind of the music press in exile. And some of them were people that had been important figures in the music press, like Ian Penman and Simon Reynolds and Mark Sinker. Um, so, you know, that kind of idea that the music press would be this thing where you would read about, you know, continental theory and, you know, important political ideas and, art house cinema and whatnot, like, 
again, if you started reading this in the in the mid nineteen nineties, as I did, you caught just the tail end of it, um, and then very very quickly taking things seriously just becomes embarrassing. Yeah. And then you end up with things like, you know, the Melody Maker, Craig David, UK Garage, My Arse cover, and things like that. So there's these two things, the kind of more abundancy in pop culture and the kind of more abundancy in official culture that, that, that are happening. And it's also a thing in architecture, which is kind of where I ended up coming in. You know, that kind of like brightly coloured, kind of wonky roof, new labour architecture, getting rid of all of that awful, you know, kind of like high-minded, concrete, grey, social housing, bog-standard, comprehensive-type modernism. And, you know, like the Park Hill flats being kind of gutted and replaced with kind of um, brightly coloured flats for young professionals. And coming along with all of this is a kind of mockery, and this is really important, coming along, along with all of this is a kind of mockery of the idea that this could ever have happened. You know, that the, the very idea that, you could have experimental television programs. Uh, you know that you could have pop music that would that would draw you into into avant garde art and, and, and continental theory or whatever, or that you could have like you know kind of like high modernist social housing, and that it wouldn't always be a total disaster. All of these things were considered inherently ridiculous at that time, and in many ways, you, one of the big divides now I think is between people who remember that time as being a kind of golden era, a kind of a kind of Weimar Republic, and people that remember it as a fucking disaster. My memory of that time is that it was awful. It was yeah, an I awful mean, you, time. You say in the book that you feel no nostalgia for it whatsoever. None, none. Um, it was a terrible time. <laughs> and it was an intellectually vacuous, politically quietist period of stupidity. And I suppose, you know, there is there is that kind of Brecht quote about the Weimar Republic itself of kind of like, you know, I cannot believe how, you know, how low it could get for people to be nostalgic for the Weimar Republic. You know, like an era in which, you know, war veterans starved on the streets and, you know, like a terrible era. And I don't actually think that Big Brother is going to end up being remembered like, you know, um, like the Berlin Cabarets, but who knows? Do you regard that time as... as um the, the lack of nostalgia that you feel for that time, is, is that because to a very large extent you see that period as, as incubating all the problems that have kind of come, come to fruition in, in recent years? Yeah, I do. But one of the things that, 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 that made it so depressing was that there was no opposition. And in many ways now is, a, is, is an objectively worse time insofar as, you know, after a, a, over a decade of austerity, many, many more people are suffering um, you know, things like climate change have obviously got a lot worse. Um, the kind of nationalism that I think was actually there, but was kind of habitually ignored at the time, has become pretty hegemonic in lots of the lots of the country. But at that point, lots of these things had started and were regarded by a kind of cross-party consensus across the entire media and across the entirety of political life, practically, apart from sort of remnants of the Trotskyist organisations and the anti-war movement and the anarchists who were always there. As, as being wonderful and how things should be. And in many ways, why I don't feel quite the same sense of alienation now is the fact that it's quite widely acknowledged that this is not a sensible way of running a society or a culture. You've mentioned that, that, that your way into critiquing the, the New Labour era was through writing about architecture and, mm, and yeah. urban design. Uh, and obviously your first book, Militant Modernism, was on, was on those, those themes. But was it... Um, because uh, obviously you were, you were writing about lots of lots of other topics as well, and was it obvious to you that you would be so much in that area in in the subsequent years? 
No. Um, I mean, one of the things that this, so, so in this book, there's quite a, quite a lot of like, you know, explaining of things, uh, or me trying to do explaining of things of like how, how, how one gets from A to B. Um, partly because I think people, you know, journalism is a thing that needs a bit of demystifying. Um, but partly also just like to explain the fact that people are always going to go assume that you must be, uh, you know, educated in architecture or even an architect. The amount of times, <laughs> the amount, amount, amount of times that people have described me at things as an architect. And that's something to do with, I think, architecture itself is there's this assumption that the only people that would be interested in architecture, particularly modern architecture, must be architects. Which is an assumption not made about music, to say the least. And it's also not an assumption made about art, um, even quite, you know, um, sort of experimental and rebarbative art. So partly it was just that I didn't have anything to say about music that no one else, uh, anyone else was saying, uh, wasn't already saying. I'm not sure if I'm, I don't think I'm a particularly first rate music writer anyway, insofar as um, I do think you have to have some understanding of how it all fits together in order to really convince as a music writer, and, and um, I don't. Um, in a sort of technical sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, often, certainly nowadays when I sort of read things, I'm often kind of, I sort of see a lot more the, 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 the when people are kind of hand-waving about their lack of knowledge about of what they're actually hearing. But, um, but yeah, there's, um, but just in general, I had nothing... <laughs> like, um, I mean, it's, it's a funny thing because I... I, I think more about music and listen more to music than probably to any other kind of art form apart from uh, probably architecture itself. And obviously in the last year, not being able to really go anywhere, I've spent much more time thinking about music than I have about architecture. Um, it's just that I've got nothing to add to what people are already doing. So it's best if I shut up. I mean, there's one, there's, there's one thing in there. There's one, like the music section in the book is very, very short. Um, but it, 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 is, I, the first, uh, it, it is, is the first. It is the first section because it's kind of where I come in. Because it's where I come in, and I think there's. Um, it's what I was trying to write about first, and it's. I mean, when I was doing scenes with with, with, with Bobby Barry, it was very much what I was um, writing about, and you know the Pet Shop Boys essay in there. Um, the, the the editor of that was like, you know, can you can you do some more of these? And I was just like, no, because they will all be like the Pet Shop Boys essay, which is basically, let me tell you about how great the old days were. And I didn't want to be that guy. And one reason why I've actually been writing a lot more about music in the last kind of 18 months, aside from the fact that, um, you know, you can't go out and you can't write about topography when you can't go anywhere, um, I, I think is the fact that being effectively at middle age I'm much less bothered about being that guy now. And um, if you if you had chosen to be that guy uh, mm. back back then, who else might you have written about? Do you think? Well, that's the other thing. Um, it would have just been entirely about the music of the olden days. Um, most music that I listen to, kind of most of it ends in about like the mid to late nineties. The last time I really got, this is like really stereotypical, like music press man twat kind of behavior. But the last kind of like new music I remember getting particularly excited about in the kind of like, wow, this is sort of something new and I've not heard it before was grime. And I perpetually get in arguments with music, people that actually do write about music for a living where they try and convince me that something new actually sounds new. And I'm just like, no, 808 kick drums are not new. Don't piss on me and tell me it's raining. But you know, it, it gets boring being that person. Um, and Mark actually um, 
I, who I, I think in general was sort of much more committed to to, to the beef than than, than 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 I than I am would make this point very emphatically, and I think was absolutely right. You know, of the points he made about sort of stagnation of of pop music uh, were absolutely right and have been utterly vindicated. And the, 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 but the the um, it's not it's just boring to read about a lot of the time if that's all you're doing, um, and. I think he knew that, which is why he would sort of hugely overrate things a lot of the time in order to kind of try and make them happen, which they then didn't. And I, and I, I very much have the feelings of talking to people that are much younger than me, that music is important to them, but in a different way. You know, what, what's what's happening is much less about sonics and about the kind of like, and pure formal innovation, but as much more about who is making it, where they're making it the sort of aesthetic that goes along with it and so forth. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I mean, I was a Teenage Manics fan. You know, I know what it is to be, you know, absolutely fascinated with something that's actually just recycling of someone else's ideas. Um, I don't know if you've heard the new single, but it is oh my God. remarkably bad. <laughs> I mean, they... they, 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 they it's they, it's they, called yeah. Orwellian, which in and of itself, you know, I, mean, I thought it was a oh, joke. But, bless their cotton socks. Yeah. Um, I mean... Even they, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I've 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 very seldom written about the Manics because, again, it's something that, that, that other people do well. Rian Jones's long essay about the Holy Bible and the book Triptych is is just this amazing kind of pulverizing essay, and I remember just reading that and being like, why would anyone else bother? And I think that's often the case. There's a lot of that. that, 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 that and that's not the case with something like writing about topography or something that, that often there's this perfect match of sort of writer and subject that there is no real point in you know like um like reading people other than john savage writing about joy division similarly you know it's kind of like well i mean you could read it but <laughs> you know why would you um that, that that's the kind of um maybe some of the paul morley stuff the the, the stuff the, the the paul morley stuff that's about depression rather than about kylie um but by and large, yeah, it was just there, there wasn't room. There wasn't room. And so the other thing that I was doing, which was basically kind of teaching myself modernism on the hop, became much more important because the other thing that obviously was going on, and, you know, it was like everybody else, we were massive retronauts. And I think like, you know, the, probably the difference between like hauntology and retro was always the thing of like, at least we knew it was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it was a kind of like, well, if we kind of theorize this thing and kind of try and understand it, perhaps it's better than just doing it and just being the Arctic Monkeys. And I'm not even sure if that's true. I don't actually think the difference between Ghost Box and the Arctic Monkeys is very important. I mean, I like Ghost Box and I don't like the Arctic Monkeys, but that's, you know, there's various reasons for that. I don't think either are doing, one is doing anything more kind of culturally significant than the other. Um, but that was very much what an article of faith in the blogs that, that that it was doing something different and more important. You made that point about the way architecture and, and design is sort of perceived in the culture, and it's, it's seen seen as, as high art in a, in, a, in a way that obviously pop music and, and, and television are, are, are not. Has, mm. has that ever been uh, frustrating in the sense that you are writing about something which there is perhaps in general less concern about or, or if there is concern about it it tends to be in a more direct um how where i live affects my life kind of a way rather than a, a sort of i've always been very surprised at how much people want to know about it um in many ways you know one reason why it became a thing i became much more enthusiastic about was because of this it was that 
you know, A, that the, that people really didn't know much about it because, you know, it's not taught in schools. It's not, it's not an A-level subject, which is ridiculous, I think. I think the only kind of thing remotely close to an architectural education I had was doing classical civilization at A-level and um, learning about the orders and triglyphs and, you know, pediments and things. Um, that's pretty much, if you're going to like comprehensive school or an FE college, that's the only architectural education you're remotely likely to get. And obviously it's all around you at all times. And so there is a kind of great deal of, you know, it, it, sort of talking about how these things came to be and what the ideas were behind them. I'm very struck by the fact that people really want to know and they really want to talk about it. That's why it's always such a pleasure to do, actually. I mean, you do get kind of a lot of knee-jerk stuff, but it's much easier to kind of get around it than a lot of people seem to think. It's not a passionately held opinion, modern architecture is shit, although a lot of kind of the create streets freaks might might like to think that it is. Um, It's an opinion based on, you know, why is this thing, you know, why does this thing streak when it's rainy? Or at a more basic level, in a lot of cases, why is the fucking roof leaking? Although that's not really a thing that that, that, that affects one architectural style more than another. I'm always kind of like surprised now, actually, when I find the kind of old critiques that were dominant in the 70s and 80s and 90s being kind of like regurgitated. And they're all usually by Americans, which I find interesting. Um, and it's Americans mostly from the right in the kind of sort of trad architecture, kind of European beauty type world, or sometimes from the left and, you know, the inimitable Nathan J. Robinson, um, who I think means well, but I do occasionally, you know, want him to read an architecture book rather than just look at a load of, you know, JPEGs and Google images. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that, 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 that actually, you know, people really do like to know how, how these things got there. So it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's quite satisfying to do. I, I, I enjoy it a lot. Is it also, uh, particularly when you're writing about about the UK, rather depressing? Because I mean, you make the point that the UK is something of an outlier in, in the in the shoddiness of its of its new public buildings mm-hmm. and and so on, mm-hmm. as compared with with mainland uh, Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, I think this is a thing that people know a lot of the time. And I think again, it's you know because of the fact that people don't don't read about architecture and, you know, uh, and there aren't properly television programs about architecture. I haven't been for a long time. They don't really think it's something that they are qualified to talk about, except uh, I know what I like level. Um, so, but then people know that the thing is shit. And that particular shitness is, it's not even stylistic as such. Like, and there's so many ways you see it. I mean, like just yesterday, I'm, you know, a member of the 20th Century Society, which is the sort of, you know, roughly the modernist equivalent of the of the Victorian society that kind of campaigned for preserving significant, mostly modern 20th century buildings. And they just succeeded in listing a department store in, in South Sea in Portsmouth, so not far from, from my part of the world. And, um, you know, a kind of 50s department store with and that sort of Festival of Britain style of a bit of patterning, a bit of sort of glass walls, nice kind of wavy concrete canopies, you know, quite fun bit of architecture. And just in the kind of picture that they'd used to kind of show, you know, we've got this building listed, you can see a recently installed bench. And that bench was kind of like shaped in this kind of like wavy pattern, you know, in a kind of like, I have seen a picture of a Gaudi building way, you know, kind of like this kind of wavy and blobby. And it had um, cheap little railings across it at every point so that one person could sit on each bit of it at the time. 
And obviously with the blindingly obvious rationale of stopping homeless people from sleeping on it. Things like that are just so ubiquitous here. Like pretentious bits of design that, you know, kind of have kind of like wavy bits and wonky bits and so on, or, or you know, in a lot of cases sort of designed this sort of neo-traditionalist style um, in order to hide the fact or distract from the fact that what they're doing is actually deeply punitive. Everywhere in the world has this, I think, but, but Britain really, really goes in for that combination of like twee and punitive in, in its buildings. And it's often in a kind of, and it's often, again, it's a thing that's about sort of surfaces and so on a lot, a lot of the time more than about style. Um, you know, one of the essays in this book is about Edinburgh, and I was kind of like assigned to write about Edinburgh. And, and Edinburgh always has these kind of endless conservation kind of fights about, you know, how can we stop a new building rather than how can we make this modern building be a good modern building? And other things just kind of completely fall by the wayside. So Waverley Station was sort of partly rebuilt about 10 years ago um, with some kind of new kind of bridging bits to kind of get from the old town to the new town with some sort of shopping mall type spaces inserted into them. And unlike, you know, every time a modern building is proposed, this seemed to kind of pass without comment. It doesn't get into any of the views, you know, it's not, it's not very big, but it was just, so tacky and cheap. You just looked at it and it had been, you know, the phrase that the British construction industry has, value engineered. It was value engineered, I made cheap, to the lowest and lowest and lowest possible level. Um, and you just essentially had this kind of like, you know, bit of poundland architecture in the middle of, you know, one of the world's greatest cities, which I don't mean I don't like Edinburgh, but it obviously is, you know, topographically one of the world's greatest cities. Um, but because of the fact that it didn't kind of break any stylistic rules or any conservation rules, it wasn't being discussed. And, and you know, that, that I found incredibly frustrating. And lots of that essay ended up being about the kind of bits of Edinburgh where no one's looking and how, you know, really appalling architecture had been built there. And unsafe architecture. There were a whole load of schools that were built um, using the private finance initiative at that point that had to be pulled down because they were literally unsafe because, you know, someone would have been killed if they hadn't been pulled down. And, you know, we have seen in Grenfell Tower that kind of like enforced kind of cheapness has killed dozens of people. And that is, it is an architectural question, but it's not a stylistic question, which is the way that a lot of kind of media, particularly but not exclusively in the UK and US, want to talk about architecture as kind of like a permanent style war. And I find style interesting. Style's great. Style's fun to talk about. But it's not why things are as they are. It's not why the shit things are so shit. That point on the UK being an outlier, do you find that you then end up being, to some extent, in agreement with the, the kind of hardline Remainer crowd? Because, you know, they do tend to posit Europe as, as the place where things are generally better and, and that the UK should be more like Europe. I mean, <laughs> wondering which, how to put this, there, there is the argument here about, you know, politics and there's the argument about I think you can see Europe as, in many ways, an attempt to do what Britain is doing, or the European Union as it currently exists, as a way of doing what Britain is doing much more slowly and in a much more controlled way. You know, the, the, the way that kind of auto-liberalism has always been the kind of the kind of main thing there. So a kind of slower... There's no big bang. Yeah, a slower consensus crushing of all that is good and beautiful rather than, you know, doing it overnight <laughs> as happened here. <laughs> and one of the things that comes with that is the fact that a lot more is retained of the things that are that, that are pleasant 
So one of the examples that I often come back to is, sort of, is the fact that the European Commission considers the privatisation of Britain's railways to be a success. And they, you know, there is legislation to essentially kind of, which is designed to push the rest of the European Union towards our privatised railway success, which incidentally we're currently dismantling because it was a very bad idea. And different kind of national railways are trying to resist that or trying to do it more slowly or what have you, but it is the line. One of the really strange things in many ways, and I think a lot of kind of right-wingers in the EU find it very strange, is that Britain was a model pupil in lots of ways. You know, and it stayed out of the single currency, which I think a lot of the European right very much think was a bad idea, which it was. So one of the things that I always kind of come back to on this is Ellen Mikesen's Woods, The Pristine Culture of Capitalism, which is a book that I actually came to via Patrick Keeler's work, not via historical materialism conferences, because, you know, whenever anything kind of had you know, anything that looked like value theory, I wouldn't go near, which meant that I got to the transition debate stuff very, very late. And then I found that I found it very, very interesting. And her argument in the pristine culture of capitalism, which I think is absolutely right, is one about just, you know, all the things that, that seem backward and bad in Britain are because it's the most capitalist country in the region. They aren't a sign of kind of, you know, failed modernization. They're a sign of full capitalization, as it were. And also being the first mover at the same time? Being the first mover in that, you know, it penetrated much more deeply into, in, into political life. And I think this is absolutely true. And she very, has a point at the end of that book where she says that, you know, that the, the things that people like when they go to European cities, you know, the, the attractive public spaces, the well-preserved architecture, the good new modern architecture, and which they contrast with, you know, the kind of poor public spaces and shitty modern architecture and kind of, you know, that we know so well, you know, the kind of contrast that anyone can see between the second cities of France or Germany, you know, like sort of Marseille or Lyon or Munich or Dusseldorf and Birmingham, that that contrast is actually about the kind of the legacies of things that aren't quite capitalism in those countries, whether that is kind of a kind of guild bourgeois tradition, which obviously, you know, in, in, in public spaces in somewhere like Brussels, you know, that that's obviously what built a lot of those. And in France, a kind of absolutist tradition. And so actually, you know, it's not so much that they were more successful modernizers, it's that they retained more that wasn't capitalism. And I think you can also kind of make the argument, although Wood doesn't make it, about the kind of uh, social democratic heartland, so to speak. Obviously Scandinavia, but also Austria, which are the countries which, you know, went furthest with that. And again, you know, what is kind of the political norm there is still significantly to the left of the political norm here. Their centrists are often well to the left of, of our centrists. However, they don't know it. And if you have an argument, and I've done it, with people in the political centre in Sweden or Austria, they would regard someone like Jeremy Corbyn, who was basically demanding that we have what is normal in Austria or, 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 or Denmark, would regard them as, you know, as radicals. Because it's all about where you're going, right? It's all, it's all the, the direction of travel. It's all about where you're going. It's, it's all about where you, it's all about the direction of travel. You know, there's a, a wonderful quote which I can't remember where I came. I found this on, on Twitter of not a quote, but a kind of anecdote of one of the leaders of the Social Democrats in Sweden going to a Bernie Sanders event and was being horrified by it. Horrified by it. You know, he was like, "This is like being at like a left party event," and that was the biggest insult in his lexicon. 
And of course, what Sanders is demanding is what is, you know, common sense politics in Sweden, even though it's been chipped away at. But because it's a social movement and because it's actually saying that those things are, are, are good and should be expanded, whereas the average social democrat in Sweden is trying to dismantle those things. You know, they see Blair and Clinton still as heroes, and they're quite irritated by the fact that the trade unions and the left parties in those countries make it more difficult for them to dismantle those things, which they'd very much like to do. So I don't think it's a kind of FPPE point as such, because I just think, you know, Europe is not, does not exist for the fantasies of, of the British left or British right to project on, you know, it's just, but it is a statement of fact. Public spaces and public transport and, and, and things like that, the kind of haptic things of everyday life, are better in most of Europe. However, if you see the EU as a totality, you could actually see Britain and Ireland, incidentally, as being part of, you know, a kind of neoliberal vanguard within it, along with Eastern Europe. There is a lot more affinity, and I, I say this after having spent five years on and off in Poland, there is a lot more affinity between Polish capitalism or Latvian capitalism, Romanian capitalism, and British capitalism than there is, in my view, between British and French or British and German. But again, I, I think that all the trends are in the direction that those that those things are actually converging. That commonality you described, that would be to do with the fact that uh, obviously it's very different, but there was a more dramatic break with uh, the previous social arrangements. Absolutely, absolutely. A very, very dramatic break. And the kind of chaos that came out of that, you know, and a, and a kind of general sort of, I mean, this kind of leads us down a sort of alley of talking about Eastern Europe, which I, I, I can do if you like. But I do think that there's very much, you know, the common experience is one of shock therapy. And obviously our shock therapy was between 79 and 86. And theirs was between, you know, roughly about 89 and 95. But it had much the same effects and a similar thing of just like crushing anything that's in the way of capital. And again, there's this thing that you find quite a lot in that part of the world are people saying, oh, well, we don't have real capitalism. And real capitalism is always West Germany. You know, real capitalism is like, you know, going to Munich and seeing how nice it is. Whereas, you know, again, I hold to this, the, the, I guess, the sort of political Marxism view of like, no, no, real capitalism is this. Real capitalism is Birmingham. You know, that what's, what you're seeing in a lot of other places is capitalism that is restrained by other forces. But I'm not sure if that gets me expelled from the sort of online Marxist <laughs> fraternity. Yeah, no, all, all, the, all the likes of tears will hate you now, Aaron. Fred. Well, not, not the likes of tears necessarily, but just the kind of like political Marxism is imperialist um, contention. <laughs> In ways that I can never quite remember. Cut all of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> just going back to the, the section on music for a moment. One of the pieces that I was struck by was a blog post from 2007 on Black Box Recorder, which is perhaps mm, not mm. A, a name that familiar to people now, although they did sort of have a bit of a dalliance with the, with the charts. So this is a group <laughs> formed by uh, Luke Haynes of, of The Auteurs, who are sort of an early Britpop band, but they're, they're Britpop when it wasn't sort of horrendous and just you know jingoistic flag-waving and, and so on. And they released three records between 1998 and 2003. Uh, and I thought the piece was very interesting to read now because you're talking about how Black Box Recorder were writing about the, the world or the, or the dream world of the, of the Daily Mail at the time. And obviously, this is a period when New Labour was winning election after, after election and, and the worldview of the Daily Mail seemed far less dominant and, and just less important than it than it does now. I mean, I, you know, I remember seeing the Daily Mail in, in my house because my, my mother would buy it. And, and just the idea that this was a very significant publication just wasn't clear to me at the, at the time. 
And in that piece, you also write about the male and, and, and British fascism and, and Oswald Mosley, a topic that was of particular interest to uh, Luke Haynes, both in his time with Black Box Recorder, but also the auteurs. And you wrote in that piece that the male would love a new Oswald Mosley, one they could really get behind <laughs> um, because Mosley was sort of narcissistic, uh, you know, an aristocrat. Yeah, um, he wasn't Jeremy Clarkson. Exactly. <laughs> and, and now we have we, we have, have Clarkson, we have we have we have Nigel Farage and um yeah. d- did you have that sort of reaction when when you when you read it because it, it made me think again of that point about the way in which mm-hmm. the male mm-hmm. was almost on the quiet incubating this culture that was was soon to to go over ground. Yes, that's that's absolutely why I put it in the book. So obviously the kind of process of putting this together and this is a book that I sort of been tinkering with on and off for a little while. And, you know, involved looking at a lot of those old blog posts. And obviously, like, a lot of them made me cringe down to my down to my very bones. <laughs> but that one, I was like, oh, oh, there's something here. So I, I kind of took it out and, and put it in the book. And I did that despite the fact that Luke Haynes was once very unpleasant to be on Twitter.com. So, um, you know, I, 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 even despite that, I now have a book about how wonderful his work is. Yeah, I mean, th- this is a man who once released a, a live album called No Dialogue with Cunts, which... Uh, <laughs> Exactly, some sort of uh, idea, which, which, like everything and almost everything in Luke Haynes, is actually a citation of um, I think something the Situationist International said at the ICA when people were expecting them to give an interview, and they were like, <laughs> "No, no dialogue with cunts." <laughs> anyway, he's an unpleasant man. Um, but those three albums, particularly those two albums, and really the, the one, the essay is mainly about one, which I think is easily the best thing he's ever done, and I think it's one of the best albums of the nineties by anyone which is called England Made Me, obviously via the, the, the Graham Greene novel. And the cover, of the, the original cover of that book that, that Haynes and John Moore and Sarah Nixie apparently wanted was of the England football team at the 1936 Olympics lining up giving the Nazi salute. And obviously this is, you know, at the point in which the middle class has discovered football and that it was wonderful. And I guess the point which you can, all, I think you can date to around 98, to the 1998 World Cup of the St. George flag starting to appear everywhere. I think that's around then that that happened. Yeah, it's very strange seeing football from earlier eras and seeing how dominant the, the Union flag is. Yeah, although of course that doesn't work in football as well because of the fact that obviously there's four football teams in the United Kingdom. And and for a while it didn't seem to be a problem and then you know the, that flag sort of appeared. So that album, England Made Me, was very obviously an attempt to kind of make an album, I think, living in the Daily Mail world. I mean, actually, Haynes is from down the road from me. I mean, I'm from Southampton and he's from Portsmouth. And the suburbs of the, you know, of, of lots of those places, you know, that are lots of places that have all the sort of prejudices of the middle class and none of the money in the in, in that region. And particularly, actually, a military town like like Portsmouth, that's, that's really big. People that actually have a shitty time but absolutely worship those that are, that are shitting on them. It's, it's very big. And it votes Tory, typically. Oh, absolutely. Which has actually changed recently in, in South Sea, at any rate. But it's an album, obviously, about curtain twitching, about murder and the obsession of murder, about kind of, you know, right-wing politics and imperialism, and quite a sort of subtle way. I mean, there's one of the most remarkable things on there is this kind of cover of Uptown Top Ranking mm, yeah. done almost in the kind of style of Unity Mitford if she was doing like Uptown Top Ranking. <laughs> Just like, I, I, I abhor indie covers of like, you know, great reggae or soul records. And I make a huge exception for this because it's, you know, it's 
It's just chilling. It's a chilling record. Yeah, it's not identifiable as a, as a reggae track at all. No, and so that, 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 that album, which I was sort of writing about, I think in 2006 or seven, seemed very much about the things that were kind of being suppressed during the kind of Cool Britannia era and the kind of New Labour Generation era, but were actually, or they were suppressed in the media, they were sort of suppressed in kind of national life, but they were actually growing exponentially. So, you know, this is the era when the Daily Mail kind of overtakes the sun as the, and long overtakes the mirror as the most popular newspaper in the country. And also going along with that, I think probably one of the best ways of, of, of explaining this is to ask people to read Daniel Trilling's essay, which published last week on the Home Office. And, you know, you realize that the kind of, you know, the kind of punitive kind of macho Home Office of sort of deportations and, and, you know, in effective internment camps and, you know, border force and all of this kind of crap was created almost entirely by New Labour. And I remember one, you know, New Labour as being an era that actually had a constant panic about the bogus asylum seeker and so forth. You know, a constant kind of ter- curtain twitching kind of inducement to people to kind of shop asylum seekers, benefit cheats, you know, mums on benefit, going on benefit to get council houses. Well, you know, one of the things that I ended up kind of feeding into the ministry of nostalgia was a thing called community payback that I remember from the Brown government, where basically a little kind of like, almost effectively a sort of chain gang of people in high-vis vests did like community service, but rather than doing community service quietly, as people usually do, they did a load of high-vis vests with community payback written on so that they could kind of show to the community that they were paying back for their crimes. You know, and that that was, and I I do get irritated when people kind of go, ah, oh, why why are people so down on New Labour? They spent on the NHS. Is it just because of Iraq? And I'm like, well, no, it was because of things like that. It was because of you know creating essentially from whole cloth an entire system of repression. You know, prison numbers went up massively. You know, that kind of the repressive apparatus of the Home Office was set up almost almost from scratch. And you know that, and people that were on benefits, which at the start of New Labour included my mother were, you know, treated as, as as vermin, essentially. And, you know, even some things like, like the sort of rebranding of unemployment benefits, job seekers allowance, it's just little niggling things like that that are just kind of insulting in a very specific way of kind of like, no, you are not made unemployed by things that are happening from outside. You are a job seeker and you are, you know, out there to do this of your own individual will and volition. And if you fail to find the job that you are, that you are seeking, you know, you can, you, you can have that benefit removed. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.